0: Welcome. Uh, My name is Chrissy Hutchison-Jones. I'm the administrative director of the Petrie-Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics, there will be a test later, (laughs) at Harvard Law School. As you may have guessed by the title and my institution, um, I am not working in the academy in my field. So I was actually a student of Stephen Prothero's at Boston University, where I worked on American Religious History, and for a variety of reasons decided at the end of my program not to pursue an academic career. Um, And Robert Puckett, who many of you probably know as the Director of Meetings here at AAR, also has a PhD from BU. And Robert has really been instrumental in the last few years in getting this Applied Religious Studies Working Group started to start addressing the issues facing folks who, for one reason or another, including the job market, but for many reasons beyond that, uh, don't want to go into the academy when they finish their PhDs. And one of the things that uh, we're excited to do this year is get some faculty to talk about their experiences working with students who are facing these questions. Um, In my own experience, it's kind of a taboo subject. Graduate students are, some for very real reasons and some for reasons that are only imagined, afraid to let faculty know when they start thinking about non-academic tracks. Um, So I think, not only can we talk about the culture surrounding that today but also what resources are available to faculty as they're guiding students to navigate non-academic waters and what resources should be available what are faculty looking for and not finding or what would they find helpful and then finally AAR wants to know what AAR can do Um, That's a really important piece of this puzzle. It's definitely a growing area of concern for AAR members and for people who are letting their AAR membership lapse. So we want to know what professional organizations like AAR can do not only to support students and adjuncts who are moving outside of the academy, but also faculty who are working with the students and former students as they step into other careers. So um, I'm gonna give very brief introductions of our panelists. Um, Most of you probably know some, if not all of them, and they can say more about themselves as they think it fits into our discussion. Uh, So at the far end of the table is Sarah Fredericks. Sarah is the Assistant Professor of Environmental Ethics at the University of Chicago Divinity School, where she works on sustainability, sustainable energy, environmental guilt and shame, and environmental justice. Uh, Next to her is Martin Kafka, Professor of Religion at Florida State University. Uh, Martin works on continental philosophy of religion, phenomenology, Jewish philosophy, and I said at home, Jewish meta-ethics isn't really a thing, and my husband, who studied with Martin at Florida State, said I was wrong. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, next to Martin is Catherine McClimond, professor and chair of religious studies at Georgia State University, where she does ritual studies, moral injury, comparative study of religion, and um, particularly relevant to our discussion today, Georgia State has started up a Master's of Arts in Religion concentration in nonprofit management. So taking religious studies, but helping prepare students for at least one track that's not the traditional academic direction. And finally, next to me is Stephen Prothrow, who was my graduate advisor in my PhD program, who uh, studies American religions at Boston University. Um, so we're gonna have kind of an open conversation, I hope. And I'm going to lob questions at our panelists, and they'll respond, and I hope they'll sort of pick up and converse among themselves. And then we'll leave plenty of time for Q&A at the end. Um, So first, do you have students, or do you know if you have students who are exploring non-academic career paths? And why are they looking in those directions?
1: Yes. (laughs) So I, I'm at Georgia State University. We have an MA prog- program. We do not have a PhD program, um, but we had uh, done one of the Tegel surveys that you can do through a program, and that told us that most of our alumni were not heading into academic careers or anything else. They were heading into the healthcare professions. They were heading into nonprofit management. They were heading into business, and they were heading into education. Like. Uh, uh, prior to to college-level education. So what we did was partnered with the Andrew Young School of Policy Studies and create the official program for what a lot of our students wanted to do anyway, which was prepare them for a career in nonprofit management that actually acknowledged that that was someplace that they were going and gave them coursework. It includes an internship experience. And we raised funding from private industry to fund each MA position. And that's made us pretty competitive for that kind of a program. So now about half of our incoming students declare that as they're coming in.
2: How many do you have coming in a year?
1: About 15 a year.
3: Um, Go ahead.
2: I think I'm I'm, I'm one of the people who work at an institution where graduate students are afraid to talk about their fear of not getting an academic post. This is in part because I work at a program where we are very good at preparing graduate students for the reality of the neoliberal university. Uh, But from 2012 to 2015, about 80% of our doctoral students have gotten uh, placements in tenure-track jobs. out of the other 20%, uh, a couple are doing admin, the one's a priest, a couple went into the business world. But our doctoral students work intense numbers of hours per week. They are instructors of record in their own classes as early as their second semester. They present sometimes several times a year at national conferences. They work together to put on a grad student conference every February. They're involved in their local graduate student union, and they do their research on top of that. Their graduate career is their life. I'm not sure that that is a wise move. I think that the culture of my institution helps to explain why when these doctoral students are doing so much to make themselves look good to hiring institutions on their CVs that saying, I'm thinking about doing something else, or I'm not sure that this is for me. Am I allowed to leave? This is why I, as a faculty person, don't hear these, these, these kinds of questions.
4: Um, so I'm at the University of Chicago now. This is my second year. But for seven years before that, I was an assistant and then associate professor at the University of North Texas. So I'm in this place of many of the graduate students that I've advised and are actually on the market are my students from UNT, and now I'm working with students in a very different um, educational setting. And I would say that yes, I definitely have students who are pursuing non-academic career paths for a variety of reasons. Um, sometimes that at UNT um, that. Philosophy and Religion program is almost entirely focused on environmental ethics, philosophy, philosophy of technology. and some students there are interested in um, some kind of nonprofit or governmental work around the environment. Um, at my current institution, the University of Chicago, I definitely know students who are also interested in pursuing other kinds of career paths. Some of those are masters, and some of those are doctoral students. And I see that for a wide number of reasons. Um, I agree with Martin that in both institutions, sometimes the culture can propel students along a certain path. Um, I do think that many of my colleagues at both institutions are open to conversations about other kinds of career paths Um, I'm still feeling that out at Chicago as a relatively new person. Um, But I think that there's a lot more um, openness than one might expect.
5: I, um, at Boston University, I don't have a lot of graduate students. I tend to um, tell them not to come. Uh, Job market's horrible. Uh, You should... Think if you're a good singer, things like that, um, and and if you really must do a PhD, you should go to Harvard or to Yale um, or some area in my field of American religion where you'll be you'll go to the top of the pile in uh, in uh, you know the job competition. You see Santa Barbara where Ann Taves is as well. I also mentioned. Um, so I tend to then get people who kind of come in a little bit sideways because the ones who come in through the front door, I tell them to leave. Um,
0: For the record, he didn't tell me to leave. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's a good thing or not.
5: So um, so if I, as I think back over, say, the last 10 years of grad students I've had, um, it's a very rare student who would go out and get a tenure track job. I mean, we had one uh, last uh, two years ago where that happened, but that was very rare. And um, there's another cohort of people who, who go, to, uh, go to a place and camp out maybe because their, their spouse is there or it's their hometown and they'll adjunct and they'll make themselves indispensable and then they'll gradually after four or five years get a tenure track uh, job. That's another route that the Boston University students uh, that I have worked with have done. but. Uh, but then, overwhelmingly, most of my students just do weird things, you know? They just, uh, and I think, I don't know really why that is. I think part of it is competitive, that because Boston University is a, a kind of second tier, so it's behind, in, you know, in, in my area of American religion, it's behind the, the more competitive schools, so, so students are gonna have a harder time getting jobs in those areas. And I also advise dissertations not really in my field from various people, uh, for various reasons that just their faculty member leaves or they, their interests shift and, and I end up advising them. So, you know, over the last five or eight years I've had people go to, um, to Phillips Andover uh, Academy to teach um, in private secondary schools. Um, when I asked this guy about his starting salary and his perks, I thought, oh my gosh, that's way more than associate, I mean, than assistant faculty in my department. Like, <laughs> that's, uh, you know, room and board and, you know, $15,000 for travel a year and a huge salary. And I was thinking, wow, why don't we, why don't we think about this for, for, for jobs? Um, uh, someone who worked a lot in uh, religion websites, um, very, you know, editing a number of religion websites, um, including the one for the Washington Post, like some of the most widely read religion websites is now working for philanthropy and is trying to figure out how to, how to give away hundreds of millions of dollars in a uh, religion space, um, has a great job. And that, another student who came through our program didn't, didn't finish, but is now, uh, Uh, at the Smithsonian, uh, working, doing religion at the National Museum of American History. Uh, um, people who are working in, uh, the business world doing, uh, ethnographic, uh, I don't know what you call it. What do you call it, Chrissy? Marketing
0: Uh, research. Yeah, I guess marketing (laughs) research,
5: but they basically, uh, they, like, do ethnographies of shoppers for, for companies. Uh, there's two, two, two guys who were in our program who both left before, uh, they finished. Uh, because they, uh, started working in this arena and they just found it fascinating and they thought doing that work was going to be even more interesting than doing their dissertation and, and they were going to make more money than I do in their first five years and they thought that was pretty good. Um, and so, so people, uh, have just tended to do that and, uh, and I don't know exactly what I do, if anything, to help them except for, uh, try to make connections for them with people I know in, um, you know, in publishing or in nonprofits or in the museum world and then uh, to encourage them uh, to do that because I, I, I have felt ever since I was chair, I was chair of my department maybe eight or 10 years ago and um, I felt it was unethical for us to be accepting so many doctoral students into our program and I just cut it by half when I became the director of the graduate program, I, I just didn't see how we could be accepting so many graduate students when there's so few jobs. Um, and uh, so given that, and then that continued, I mean, I mean our, in our department, you know, we're, we're basically at five or six um, students a year, which is better than the, the 12 to 15 that we were admitting back when I, I started uh, running that program. But um, I think I think it's just a kind of, uh, you know, necessity situation that there's so few jobs that it's important for students to be entrepreneurial, and I don't know that I really do anything except for to tell them that uh, that's cool to think about other things, because it's so difficult to be getting tenure track jobs, and also that um, sometimes those jobs can be more interesting than my job, you know. Um, and so... And I find that uh, the job satisfaction for people we have uh, who are going out into these alternative careers is really high. Uh, And a bunch of them are here at the AR um, this year, and they report the same, so.
6: Do your
0: institutions do anything for you? Do you know if your institutions? So Catherine, you're in a special case. It sounds like your department has really sort of forged your own path in certain ways. And so you can speak to whether or not there were any um, resources in place for your department as you started exploring the option of creating this track. And then the rest of you I'd like to know, um, you know are, are your institutions responding to this apparent need for attention to alternatives mm-hmm. for graduate students coming out of various programs?
1: Yeah, I think my institution is different. We're a state institution, we've grown rapidly, and our president prides himself on being innovative. So I frankly steal his language and tell the people immediately above me that you know if they want to be seen as upholding his agenda, they're going to uphold my agenda because mine's innovative. And so I'd, I'll just do that. Um, we have been able to negotiate with my dean's office for funding um, to, to kickstart some of these fellowships for the MA students. And so we would have a period of time where we would start the program and the sure. dean's office would commit to a certain kind of package for our MA students. And then it was my job to go see if I could then secure private funding. So the most recent funding we have is from Wellstar Health Systems. And they've endowed an MA fellowship at 12000 a year plus tuition waiver for MA students, which is a pretty decent yeah. package. Um, and, and uh The biggest problem we have in terms of they they like all of that, but then when they go to the metrics for us, it's still the old metrics where they want to see how many of your MA students are you placing in top PhD programs. And I'll say, you know, not that many, (laughs) but that's not what we're trying to do. And so our big push right now is making those kinds of systemic changes. So I find I can secure the resources to make the program happen pretty easily. It's in making sure you've also got the metrics for evaluation for your program later on down the road, um, and that, that can get difficult.
5: Yeah, and uh, in terms of the support, I think uh, what, I think at Boston University, it's really happening mostly with, um, with our grad students, which, who include Robert Puckett, by the way, I forgot to mention Robert in a, an alternative <laughs> career here, working for the AAR, um, I don't think it's I mean, I, we don't have any programs like that. And I, think, I don't think many faculty in our department are thinking about this at all. And, uh, and I think they're just thinking about training uh, people for tenure track, uh, tenure track uh, jobs. So I think the initiative is really coming from the grad students themselves. And there's a little bit of a culture among the grad students of talking about this because everybody knows that grad students are doing some cool things and not that many people are getting uh, tenure track jobs, at least not right uh, out of the out of the box, and so we have you know one of the people on the panel earlier today, um, is you know has his own YouTube channel where he does. He has this thing called Religion for Breakfast, um, and he has a he has a big following there. You know it's interesting. So he's he's developed you know his own public, uh, even as a grad student studying ancient you know Mediterranean material culture, uh, in the New Testament era. So I think uh, it's really not about support from the faculty or from uh, the higher, upper administration, but it's sort of more on entrepreneurial. And I think what the faculty are doing, or some of them, are just kind of getting out of the way and not, not making a lot of trouble. That's my sense of it.
4: Um, one thing that I'm excited about at Chicago is that um, They have a new program called PATHS, which is, let's see, Professional Advancement and Training for Humanities Scholars. And it rolled out uh, this fall. It's a part of the larger UChicago grad. And the reason why I'm saying these things specifically is that they have websites with some publicly available resources that other people could check out. And the PATHS program is funded by a couple of grants, and I don't have all of the grant agencies, but including the National Endowment for the Humanities, and they've been pairing with uh, the AHA as well. And so in these programs, they have over 100 workshops a year to help students think through the process of applying for jobs, both in the academy and in government or industry or nonprofits. They have specific workshops tailoring your CV or your resume to different kinds of areas. Um, They have different um, alumni networks that they help put people in contact with. And they also have some pretty specific um, resources for helping students think through what it might mean to pursue a non-academic career. What kinds of people could they contact to talk about it? How do they write those initial emails? Um, How do they translate their skills of being a humanities scholar into something that the broader world understands? And I was really impressed by the bits of information that I've found so far. The students that I've interacted with that have used those offices have really been excited and complimentary about what they've seen so I'm I'm feeling positive about that Um, one other program that I wanted to mention coming out of those offices is one for um, that has a global component and a local component of professional training so there are scholarships available so that students can be placed in kind of internship scenarios where they will be using their religious studies or their humanistic training and also developing professional skills. So one master's student that I was working with last year had spent the previous summer working on development projects in India, putting together his religion and linguistic training with the kinds of environmental projects he was interested in doing and the scholarship provided through the program allowed him to do that and still um, meet his basic monetary and subsistence needs. Um, So those seem like some nice resources in addition to faculty pointing people in that direction.
2: I don't work at an institution that um, has the resources to spearhead these kinds of opportunities for humanities graduate students. Uh, But I do want to follow up on something that Professor Prothro said about colleagues who go on training their students as if there were tenure track jobs out there. Um, He didn't use this phrase, but let's call these people ostriches, (laughs) sticking their heads in the sand. On the one hand, that's not a bad thing. And I mean by that the following. I'm really reluctant to say that we as a guild should be ashamed of the skills that we pass on to our doctoral students. Skills in research, skills in communication, skills in project management, at this past January's meeting of the Society for Classical Studies, John Paul Christie from the ACLS gave a presentation about its public fellows program, which um, partners with government and nonprofit agencies to place PhDs in those positions. And it's a small program. It's one of, s- Several such programs, some are based at scholarly organizations, the AHA and the MLA have versions of this. I believe that the AAR does not. Um, Some are based at institutions uh, such as the University of Wisconsin or the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. But the results of these programs are that the partnered organizations are very satisfied with the PhDs who come to work for them. That says something about what we do as a guild in our training of graduate students. That says something about its value that goes beyond what you read in various newspaper columns and that goes beyond what certain state governors, such as Rick Scott of the state of Florida, says about anthropology majors, even though his own daughter was one can't deal with that family drama there. I don't understand it. So, when, so these ostriches aren't necessarily doing bad things by passing on these kinds of skills to their students. The bad thing that they do is to present an attitude that they think that their doctoral students can game the market if they spend 80 or 90 hours a week doing their work for graduate school. That that the the, the life of the graduate student is the historical sequel to the monastic life. That's evil. And those people who tell their students that, or even unconsciously project that kind of attitude to their students, are causing suffering, and they should stop. Graduate stipends are not stipends for 40-hour-a-week jobs. I believe that uh, even in our contracts at Florida State, um, some graduate students are are appointed to the equivalent of 20 hours a week. Other graduate students are appointed to the equivalent of 10. It's a part-time job. Faculty should expect that kind of work and they should live with the consequences of that. They should be liberal with their incomplete deadlines. They should um, encourage their students to follow other interests, to create other networks that might lead to remunerative opportunities down the road. They should tell their students not to put all their eggs in one basket. And they can do that at the same time that they pass on valuable skills to their doctoral students.
1: Can, can I just respond to that real quickly? Yes, please. I mean, I found, the, I, I agree with everything that you said. I, 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 I'm very proud of what we teach graduate students to do. I don't want to be misunderstood. I, I wholeheartedly believe that we train people who can contribute to society in a variety of settings. <laughs> And my frustration is when only one setting is valued. Mm-hmm. And, and I think there are problems with the structure of, of academia, at least my institution's metrics, that, that foster that. But I also think we, we need other partners. We weren't trained to be job counselors. And we all went, well, most of us <laughs> went, in, went into you know, traditional academia. So I'm not the best advisor. And maybe getting out of the way, I think, is a piece of the advice. We've also taken advantage of our alumni. I mean, we use our alumni who've been doing other things and we spotlight them and we bring them in and we have them talk to our students. And I think we have to make them look as valued as the people who then went on to tenure track positions and not like somehow they're the the less valued stepchildren or we're going to communicate this message that you're talking about.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: So you mentioned networks.
0: Um, I've I've heard that several times, and it came up a lot earlier today in our panel with folks like me who've ended up outside the academy. Um, And Sean Landris, who is working in nonprofit and government work in Southern California, uh, talked about how, from his perspective, he thinks that faculty actually do have networks that could be at least of some use to their graduate students, but they need to be helped to see the ecosystem they're already inhabiting. I think what he said was that they're fish who can't see the water they're swimming in. Mm -hmm. You know, you do know people at presses. You do know people who you know work at foundations and and (coughs) give grants and those sorts of things. But that's something I'm hearing each of you say, that you don't feel like you have networks to offer to your students. Do you think there are other ways besides just pointing up oh, well, wait, I have these students who are doing these things that I kind of heard about on Facebook, and I know this person at this press who I've worked with. I mean, are there things that you think that departments and universities could be doing to build networks outside of just academic career paths to then offer to students?
5: I I liked what Sean said, and and it made me think um, about my own networks, and I—I th- I think it depends on the faculty member, right? I mean, we all have different networks, but I have a ton of networks of people in, at you know, CNN and at the Smithsonian and uh, in publishing and in philanthropy, and and it is true. If you think about it, I think it's worthwhile to to take an inventory uh, as a faculty member of your own. Um, your own networks of people you know in other, you know, fields. I have, I have, uh, networks in the state department. I have, you know, networks, uh, around DC. So, so I do, I do have that. And I, um, I haven't, you know, if I have a student, um, at the A.A.R. I think about introducing her to various people in the profession, you know, but I haven't really thought systematically about, um, Well, and I have when I was working at the Smithsonian, I did bring in uh, a graduate student of mine to work on uh, a project I was doing there. So I have, I guess, I have made some efforts in those directions. But I think that idea of um, just inventorying your network and not assuming, oh, I'm a college professor, so that I don't really, I can't really help these people, unless they want to get a job um, in academia. I, I think it, I think it's smart to think, think otherwise on that.
2: It could also be the case that institutions could do better work of data gathering on its humanities alumni. That says something about the way in which certain institutions, career centers, and development offices are hamstrung in terms of staff. I don't know. There are some recent humanities PhDs who could do that kind of work really well. But um, there, there's a way in which Um, institutions could do more work to let their own faculty about networks that are not many more degrees of separation from their actual network. So I don't have the networks that Professor Prothero does. I work in philosophy. Museums give me back pain. (laughs) Um, But still, there are there There are people at my institution who could help me broaden those networks, and I wish that those positions existed at my institution and at others like mine
0: Martin I wonder so i I will out myself I'm also a Florida State grad. I went there for undergraduate and um, originally met Martin there um, but knowing what i do about the politics in florida particularly around higher education and my own memory of florida state i wonder if and i hesitate to say utilitarian but you know an almost more utilitarian approach you know rick scott wants to know what the major is like what job is the major going to produce mm-hmm. and in some ways that perspective is absolutely anathema to our training and our liberal arts perspective. But at the same time, it's not an irrelevant question. And might it not almost be a selling point to the university to convince them they need to be investing? And I mean, I suppose, um, particularly all of you who've had experience at state institutions, I wonder if that's not an approach.
4: yeah at my previous institution there was definitely a focus from the state and uh, higher-ups at my institution about placement about jobs about um, these sorts of things and i do think that developing alumni networks and understanding where students go and sometimes i think helping masters or doctoral students connect with previous alums to see where they went um, might be a good way to do that. One thing that I found in my previous position is that we as a faculty were really interested in helping our students do that. We'd talked for a couple of years about are there ways to get philosophy or religion internships going? But thinking of how to start that process Mm -hmm. Amid all of the other responsibilities that we had as faculty members and being really unsure of how to start those networks and what would that even mean, um, made it a very difficult process to get going. But I do think that, um, Chrissy, as you were saying, that um, taking a more utilitarian approach could um, help justify that or could help get resources for that at a number of institutions
1: we've actually oh, I'm sorry. No, no, yeah. go ahead. well we've actually done what you're talking yeah. about and honestly it didn't take that much I, um, yeah. it's it's i mean it is work i don't want to pretend that yeah. um, but i've also found it's tremendous we started an alumni board so i have an alumni advisory board that meets with me mm. once a year Um, They also give me money, frankly, so I have money that I can spend to help supplement travel costs to come to conferences like AAR, but none of them is an academic, Mm -hmm. and we did that intentionally in the beginning because I can talk till I'm blue in the face about what you can do with a religious studies degree, but I'm an academic. The alumni walk in their room. And they are entrepreneurs who started their own business. They're um, the medical ethicist at Wellstar Health System. They are immigration attorneys. Um, They run their own web places. And and they're just the face of religious studies for me. Mm -hmm. And they help me set up internships too, so that's been useful. But probably the most important thing they do is be the face of religious studies to mm-hmm. my students and to my administrators as well and to student advisement. I don't know if you guys have the same problem I do, but my student advisement center thinks that if you major in religious studies, you wanna be a minister. And you know I, I, I'm still fighting that battle, but the more I can get alumni in front of them, and it, it, it takes a little bit of time, but it honestly doesn't take that, that much to just get it going.
2: Are these BA or MA alumni?
1: Both, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the nice thing is, once it gets going, then they sort of started their own culture. They know each other. They help me figure out who to invite next. Um, And it's it's I think it's again making the case to the world, which we need to do for all sorts of reasons right now, that religious studies is relevant. That we have, you know, we're part of all these conversations about policy and education and healthcare and politics and law and you name it and business in our country, and. Having the face of that be not just academics, but also people in those professions, I think is going to help us
2: make that case. I mean, the, again, I, I, I just, I, I also don't mind the utilitarian answer either, but it has to have data behind it. So the utilitarian answer isn't just utilitarian, it's also a way of doing imminent critique mm-hmm. of those people who say, you're all gonna be baristas. By the way, 20 years from now, there's gonna be a great cultural history of the barista and uh, that will take anxiety over academic hiring sort of located on the barista as its a great chapter. But, My
0: husband took his Jewish meta-ethics as a barista for yeah. three years after coming to Boston, so. <laughs> Did you wanna say something?
4: This is kind of going in a different direction Um, but I think as much as networks and institutionalization and thinking about alumni are also important for me at least I think a part of the way that I try to interact with my graduate students is to be open to the kinds of things that they're interested in and a part of that is to say academic versus non-academic careers a part of that is to say a research focused versus a more teaching focused career. A part Mm -hmm. of that is to say, student, your face lights up every single time you talk about this. You clearly love editing. You clearly love working with students. You really tell me about your advocacy work. Why not think about that more? And so I try to pay attention to um, what they're actually telling me, like in the, f- mm, in the explicit level of their words, but also in the implicit kinds of conversations that they have, mm-hmm. and I try to encourage them to develop those kinds of skills and interests, and I think as you were saying, uh, Professor Kafka, that it's not, it doesn't have to be 100% of the time reading and writing about your subject that you can have a well-rounded life as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that helps open the conversation about where their degree might take them. Um,
0: Um, So you've all more implicitly or explicitly mentioned some places that your students have ended up that are not tenure-track positions. I'd like you each to say a little bit more explicitly where where do you see people ending up? I mean, Martin, you you mentioned the um, the fellowships and people being you know institutions receiving these PhDs and being really happy with what they were getting, even though these were not you know religion jobs. Um, You know, and uh, Catherine, you've mentioned healthcare. Sarah, I I know your focus is more environmental work, um, Mm -hmm. but there's a broad range there. where where are people landing and, and finding success and, and what institutions, you know, this is something that the AAR is talking about, you know, trying to think in terms of maybe job fair or at least job networking receptions in the future for all tech careers. Where should we be looking? Who should we be talking to and who should we be trying to introduce to the idea that, hey, graduate studies in religion prepares people really well for the stuff that you need people to do?
5: Um, I think, uh, I mean, I think a lot of the students that I've known at BU have h- headed in some direction toward, uh, media, public history, those kinds of things, and, areas that I know something about, um, and I do know, I mean, I do American religious history. I do know in the history space, there's tons of jobs in, um, local historians, you know, I mean. So many towns in the United States have local local historical societies, and almost every city has one and, and they employ people i mean actually, one of my recent uh, grads is at um i didn't mention her but she's at um the uh, l d s latter day saints um, archives in uh in salt lake city um, she has an amazing job she just sits around and does research and gets paid It's co- totally cool. I wish I had a job like that um, so uh so that is something, I mean, if there's a history connection, I mean, I haven't really reached out in that, in that way, but I think that there, there are a lot of, and, and the AHA is working on this, there are a lot of jobs in public what they call public history. And um, so, but I haven't thought a lot systematically about that, I have, like I say, I think um, this has more been necessity, uh, and then uh, talking with students about their interest. I, I will say that, um, The students I have, when they come to me, and like I say, they usually don't come in as my student. They usually come to me as someone else's student, and and then I say I'll I'll take them on. And when I ask them, I always ask them, well, what do you want to do when you graduate? And whenever they say they don't want a tenure track job, I just get so thrilled, (laughs) you know, just because I feel so much less pressure. You know, uh, I have a student now who's doing, who's writing on. uh, is, is Islam in the United States, uh, white converts to Islam, white male converts to Islam in the United States. And she, uh, she wants to work in media. She already has a, muse- uh, a magazine she's doing on Islam in America and uh, it seems pretty successful. She's really well connected in uh, media areas. And so I just feel happy <laughs> when I talk to her. I'm not, I don't have the pressure. Trying to find her a job, um, so I think uh, I think those are the areas that I tend to be more aware of um, is in that you know media arena. But that could be just because more and more grad students are in religion in the last ten years are are active with blogs and active online and writing in various ways for various online religion publications. So that that could be not really anything to do with with our program, but just to do with the, uh, ecosystem of, of, you know, graduate student life and religion right now.
4: Um, a lot of my students are still in their degrees or are just <coughs> exiting. Um, I do have several students that are, um, in academic tracks or in tenure track jobs, um, or, interviewing this weekend. Um, But of those in uh, non-academic career paths, one who I worked with at my previous institution came in to our program having a background in working at the EPA and was interested in deepening her philosophical content and has since been working with a green construction company and has grown very interested in the relationships between the ethics that are implicit in the ideas promoted by the green construction industry and then how those may or may not be lived up to in their um, actual practices and uh, the last time i talked to her she was envisioning continuing in that area so i think sometimes when i think about people in non-academic Careers, they are people who already came in with the particular connections to an industry or uh, an area and then wanted to develop their particular skills, their research, their knowledge of religion, and then um, take that back to where they were going. Um, I know some other people who are in the midst of um, moving toward nonprofit or developmental. Work in the United States or abroad, working with various nonprofits about, as I'm an environmental ethicist usually, um, environmental um, or peacemaking work,
1: mm-hmm.
4: often with a religious bent, but not always explicitly. Oh, and I have some people who, at least one, who's working in a private school teaching logic and philosophy.
2: Um, if, 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 if the question is what should the AAR be doing, which, which I take to be this, the last half of that, uh, it seems that there are two answers, I think. One is to network with other scholarly organizations. I think the ACLS is a good place to start and find what are those partner organizations that have shown themselves to be receptive to em, employing humanities PhDs. Part of it is just c- keeping up with the Joneses, seeing what are the MLA and the AHA doing and trying to trying to imitate that and trying to mold that to the to the AAR ecosystem um, so that's one thing. however, I also think that um, we shouldn't necessarily assume that um, the AAR should put all its eggs or or many eggs in the non-academic jobs basket. I wish, and maybe this is more of a fantasy that isn't realizable, but I still think that it is something that the AAR should do, that the AAR should partner with other scholarly organizations and lobby Congress to return mandatory retirement to colleges and universities. At my institution 14.3% of faculty in the College of Arts and Sciences are 66 and older. That's a large number. Do I know how many jobs would result if mandatory retirement were to were to return? I don't. But I also think that a way of solving the 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 adjunctification of academia cannot exclude that option. It wasn't all that long ago that colleges and universities had mandatory retirement. Colleges and universities were only prohibited from having mandatory retirement policies as of January 1st, 1994. And that was after a congressionally mandated study said oh, you know, every, everyone's gonna retire, except for those people who do a lot of research and are really invigorated by working with students. You know, as if the people who hate working with students are just gonna retire instantly or something like this. Um, that report, by the way, is, is online and it's a really entertaining read with your morning coffee. Just don't be around a wall that you wanna punch. But this is a deeply, deeply important thing that the AAR and other scholarly organizations should do. It may be screaming into a whirlwind, but those people who do want academic jobs and rightly feel that the market is stacked against them will at least feel that the scholarly organizations to which they pay their dues in order to lengthen their CVs are on their side.
1: The one thing that, that I would add is, I would like the AAR to help uh, doctoral students and, and MA students become multilingual. I think we're very good at training our grad students to talk back to us, to represent their skills to us in an academic setting. What I find they don't know how to do is to say what skills they would bring to another setting. And you're right, they have research skills that would be applicable in other settings. Um, one of the... the things we talk about in my university is that my students are trained to navigate multicultural contexts very successfully. They're trained to work (coughs) with people coming from multiple perspectives and somehow navigate and and maybe lead a conversation that can lead to a constructive resolution. What we found is that business, human resources departments love that. Um, So there are all sorts of contexts, and I think just training our students to to talk to different audiences about what they do might empower them to then go and, and seek some stuff on their own.
0: So on that note, uh, we want to invite questions. And as I said, we're recording right now. So I'm going to ask everyone to speak into the microphone. And it would be great if you could say, can I, have one thing? Sorry to I suppose I can allow that, Sarah.
4: Um, So just to add a little bit on this last comment, I too would really like to see the AAR do some of that translation work. Mm -hmm. And I think really concrete workshops about how to envision those next steps, both of translating your skills, but what might it mean to do this other kind of work would be really helpful. It wasn't that long ago that I was searching for a job or envisioning what my postgraduate career might look like. And frankly, when I entered my PhD program, I wasn't a person who thought, yes, I'm definitely (laughs) going to be a professor. Um, I really liked studying the ideas, and then it came to a time when I thought, well, I do like studying the ideas, and yeah, I seem to like teaching, and it seems like this is the path that is um, clear, And I understand how to do that through reading various professional uh, publications like the Chronicle of Higher Education and talking to my professors. Sure, sure, I'll do that. Um, And other ideas which sometimes were floated around just seemed very foggy. And I wasn't sure how to do that. And I do very much appreciate my job and I really love what I do. But I think had I... Um, understood more of other possibilities, I might have explored those as well. And so I'd really uh, support the AAR in having those kind of workshops. And I wonder if we as faculty who (coughs) are members of the AAR could do more to indicate to the AAR that we really value this Mm -hmm. and uh, support it. Thank you,
0: so I already see hands up in the back. Um, I'm just going to ask you when I give you the microphone to introduce yourself So we know who's talking
6: Hi, thanks. Um, My name is Jennifer Alexander I am ABD at Vanderbilt University, and I want to make a couple of comments as well as ask a question Um, so first of all what AAR and I would include SBL, I haven't heard SBL here yet. Um, as far as other organizations, partner organizations and so on, I assume that's included here, but um, I associate more with SBL. Um, I would applaud AAR for having this, for having other kind of alt act workshops, that's great. Um, I would recommend that next year, this panel include a student who is in the middle of the anxious time, because, I, and I think we're talking about two different, well, it's not two, it's more than two, but a couple of different types of students. So master students who may not be interested from the get-go in academic jobs, and people like me who in many or if not most cases are very interested in finding a tenure track position. So I think it's important to recognize the difference, but I mean my hair has been almost standing up at certain points in this discussion. So pulling in maybe an ABD while you're doing this who's actively searching for jobs would be helpful. Um, Okay, so ostriches, how is it ethical or is it ethical to not be really transparent with the students, particularly the PhD students. I know you're talking about different ways that um, institutions respond. So in one case, I, I appreciate your bluntness. Um, uh, I'm gonna mispronounce your name, Dr. Proth- Prothero? Yes, Pr- Pro- Pro- Prothero. Prothero, yes, I appreciate what you did. You had a particular response of you know, limiting the positions because you felt it was unethical. You know what the job market is. I don't, now I do. I know that my friend got a job that 170 people applied for. I know that somebody who um, is from Princeton got a job that a couple of hundred people applied for. But that's what the market is. Students coming in are talking to each other. They're not hearing it. If you're talking about data, are you sharing it with the students? How transparent are these departments? So, um, So that's kind of my question um what is an appropriate response for your institution in being transparent to students and then um let's see yeah finally also with the 80 to 90 hours a week i I couldn't have done that with small kids that that cuts out a lot of people right from the beginning so i mean and people who are working jobs and that sort of thing um and we're not talking about race or gender or any of that. I haven't heard any of that yet, so that's another issue. And I'm sorry I'm carried on uh, carrying on here, but I'm just kind of worked up about this, so. I
0: do just want to let you know we had a panel earlier today that included um, several people who are already in Altac careers, but also two students who are ABD and searching, and so that will be available via the AAR's website as a podcast um, within a few weeks, I believe. Is that right, Robert?
5: I think it's really important um, to ask about placement, and I everybody who comes to me, um, who I tell to go somewhere else, they I tell them to ask about placement. What's your placement of people? I mean, it's kind of crazy. I mean, people go and buy a car, and they will do all this investigation and all this research about the car, and then people will go into a graduate program and they'll they'll um, hope that something good is going to happen, and uh, and uh, and i think most graduate programs have this data so you can ask and it's very important also to look at the data with care because sometimes for the metrics that you're asked for from your your dean you know if you have someone who gets a one year postdoc that counts as employment but that's a one year postdoc and after that they don't have a job so so i think that that's uh, it's really i think that that's really important and um and uh i think you know, those of us who are faculty members, and we should push for more transparency on that. I don't, you know, I, I don't see why the AR couldn't have a policy that on on websites for graduate programs they should list this data on the first page of the website. Why not? You, you know. You ask that as the best, best practice. At all. You do, yeah. Okay, interesting. Yeah.
4: In my previous position, I advised and worked with a lot of undergraduates and many who were interested in pursuing graduate school. And in my current position, I have a lot of master's students interested in doctoral work and then work with doctoral students. Um, And at every stage, it's a personal priority of mine to always have frank conversations with students about um, job placement, about the difficulties of the job market, And often, frankly, my students look at me with these starry eyes and say, oh, but you have a great job. And frankly, then I often talk about many, without naming names, but I often talk about many of my cohort from graduate school and many of the people that I know. And I tell my students, well, I could count out this many people who are in, Tricky positions of one year postdocs after one year after one year, or have chosen other careers for a wide variety of reasons, including reasons that are they decide that that's a better fit for them, or for their families, or more economically viable, or just what they need to do. And getting back to Professor Prothrow's piece about what are the ethics of that, to me, that's the ethical thing to do. I also really try to point my students to um, publications that talk about the field. So they're clear that it's not just one professor saying this, but that there's a lot of literature out there to help them wrap their mind around it.
2: I would only add that um, part of the, part of the ethical stance involves telling people that doing a, going to graduate school does not entail shutting off other kinds of ways of having a life. Right? Again, you're not paid enough to treat it as a full-time job, much less a kind of monastic life. And that has to be part of the speech too. It's not just looking at job placement. It's not just, um, are you sure you wanna do this? Read these, read this adjunct journalism. Uh, But it's also, you're allowed to do other things while you're doing coursework, while you're writing your dissertation. Those are great ways to imagine other kinds of lives using the skills that doctoral work gives.
6: Um,
0: I, I would just add that to your point about gender and race, that's certainly an issue that we talk about in the working group, and it's, it's one that we haven't addressed head on. I did notice, particularly this morning in the panel, that featured people who have already chosen alternative careers and also two graduate students who are considering those options. Um, Last year we held a panel that was very similarly constructed of people in all tech careers. And down the line, every single person last year, and it was all men, I was moderating, so I was the woman on the panel through happenstance. Um, But all of the men on the panel named family reasons for their choice to pursue an alternative career. Whether it was because a partner had a good job that was not movable, whether it was because of an income question, you know, they were gonna make more money doing what they were already doing and could better support their family unit. you know, Babies came along when dissertation was due and babies took precedence. And that was men talking. Um, so I, I was definitely struck that it didn't come up today, but it was very much on everyone's mind as we discussed this last year. And we, we definitely are talking behind the scenes about the gender and racing uh, race issues and just haven't pushed those to the forefront as of yet.
3: Hello, I'm Dan Moses and I'm from Syracuse University. I am ABD right now and have done some of this in fact. So maybe I'm speaking only for, out of my own Mind here, but I think that going forward with a venture like this, you will encounter or create a great deal of cognitive dissonance for people when you try to sell a career in business or government or higher ed administration or even the nonprofit world to people who have been immersed in far left political critique for sometimes more than 10 years. So there needs to be a robust discourse of sort of the damage you can do within the system. It needs to, it needs to be an ethically livable option for people. And it, it is for me, but I, I imagine for a lot of my colleagues it wouldn't be. So I think there really should be a, a strong conversation about that, including with people who, who come from that kind of orientation and have left the academic world and feel that they are doing good work.
7: Uh, Chris Rios from Baylor University, maybe to draw a couple of strings together and and to ask you to be a little bit more explicit. You've already touched a little bit on um, um, encouraging students to uh, consider altac careers early in their graduate career. We were having a conversation about this at Baylor, and one of our students involved in a roundtable we were having was said we need. She said, "I'm not even there yet, but we need to find a way to encourage students to have." She called it a disposition of flexibility so they understood that they could do things that they felt drawn towards outside of the academy so my question is what have you found that works uh... what has been a success there i have a second question although i think i'm getting feedback um, which is do any of you for those students who come in uh... and 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 seem to be aimed towards an altac career do you ever adjust their degree requirements meaning do their comprehensive exams then get tweaked, customized to what they're pursuing, or does their dissertation suddenly take on a different look um, while maintaining the standards of the program and all those kinds of things, but do, does it ever get adjusted a bit for uh, a career that's not necessarily tenure track?
2: Um, I'll just say that uh, we have a long history in my program of, um, having some plasticity to the comprehensive exam structure, so I don't think that would be a problem. We haven't quite had a case yet where that plasticity would need to be imagined for the dissertation, but I don't think that my colleagues and I would be averse to that. Um, And as part of the dispositional flexibility, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for repeating myself, but part of that has to come in the form of faculty permission for students to have that. That's, it. I mean, faculty are in positions of authority whether they like it or not. And when faculty don't either explicitly or implicitly give their students permission to have that flexibility, that creates all kinds of harmful situations.
4: Um, If I can jump in on this disposition of flexibility, which I think is a great term, um, I can think of two cases where this comes up for me in working with students. Um, One is thinking about summer jobs. Summer employment, and in my previous position, I remember several instances where I had conversations with students who were trying to decide between a job, TAing or teaching another class, or working at a nonprofit or doing a um, administrative role or something like that. And they were, in a couple of cases, people came to me, I think, clearly expecting me to say of course you need to do the teaching. And I said, well, what are your goals for this summer? And would another teaching job on (coughs) your CV really actually be helpful at this point? Do you need other kinds of skills? I tried to ask questions like, are you the kind of person who needs a couple of different things? Are you, say, studying for exams, and you really need a time for your mind to rest? So it might be better to do a job that allows you to um, make some money while you have that rest or develop other kinds of skills that might, I, don't know. I find that when I have different types of tasks, none of them are quite as taxing as if I'm doing the exact same thing all day long. and so I. I try to have those conversations with my students so they can make a decision that's really well-informed and preparing them for all kinds of things in the future. Um, Another thing about this disposition of flexibility is frankly that, and I feel kind of counter-cultural in doing this, and I'm not always, sometimes it makes me a little bit uncomfortable, I will talk to my students about non-academic things that I will do. I don't go on at length about my hobbies, but I might say to my students, no, I'm not going to come to this event at five o'clock on Thursday because that's the day I go running with my friends. And I, I mention those things in part to make sure that they know that it's okay to do those other activities. Um, because I think that all too often the conversation is, in academia, is how is your weekend? Oh, I only wrote three pages. And, <laughs> and I think, and I think yeah. that that's, yeah. n- I mean, it's not just about the academic careers, but it's about what does it mean to live a meaningful life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's part of mine.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, I'm in a different position because of the MA program, but we we are flexible so that people come in and they tell us what they want to do. But the first year is pretty similar, and the idea is that way they could be flexible. But then the requirements do shift. So someone who, you know, is pre-PhD, we've got teaching opportunities. If somebody knows they're not going to do that, then we're looking at internship placements. Um, Maybe someone's writing a master's thesis. Another student is writing a grant. Um, So if they want to go into nonprofit work, having experience helping to write a grant looks good. So we try really hard to be flexible and I I think obviously it's easier to do that in an MA program, but I, I like to think that part of what we are doing is giving students the opportunity before they're on the job market to think through, okay you loved religious studies as an undergrad, that's great. Look at all the ways you could go forward with this and if we can start doing that early on and then build a culture of faculty also supporting that because all my faculty in my department are gung-ho. and we've got you know contacts at the Carter Center that a faculty member helps set up a job and that's that's viewed exactly the same way as somebody getting somebody else into a top PhD program. And I think you just have to build that culture in.
8: Uh, hi, Dave McConaughey. I'm on the hamster wheel. Uh, I had a stable, Uh, semi-permanent part-time position that I was quite happy with. My wife had an excellent job. She's promoted. I moved. Lose the job. Uh, So just as context, so one of the things that I heard that was really interesting yesterday at the religious literacy panel talking about the um, statement that the AAR is producing as a grant document about religious literacy was that uh, something like two-thirds of the universities in the United States do not have departments of religion and that the teaching about religion is farmed out to those other departments. So someone who's in the you know the hamster wheel of trying to uh, continue to look for a position, can you comment on the responsibility of faculty members and perhaps the incumbency on the AAR to continue advocating for the advancement of religious studies departments and that that is potentially part of the outreach of religious literacy? So maybe there's... Some kind of uh, dynamic here that we continue to be missing, right? About the advocacy for more departments at more universities at more kinds of universities that are doing the work that we do, and that that is all not the just the overproduction of graduate students when there are no jobs, but also the lack of departments, right? Yeah. That do the work that we do.
2: The the, the underproduction of of, of of departments is a is a huge issue, um, and. I think it's still difficult in these budgetary climes to do lobbying for more departments successfully. That being said, I would kill for training on how to talk to legislators and their aides at my state capitol to lobby for Departments of religion not um, or more teaching of religion not only within the state university system but also within the state college system. these are mm-hmm. we n- now in Florida we call what what used to be called community colleges are now largely called state colleges so um, so that I think would be a lovely thing for faculty at publics to do, since I think a lot of the underproduction of departments is within the public systems. Um, But it's also the case that I think that the AAR could step up and do more of this kind of lobbying on its own, partnering with faculty in every state. so that departments can have not only um, the language about a right to exist, but also a right to have more than one or two people staffing it.
6: All right, well, it looks like we've taken all of our
0: questions from the audience. Do uh, any of our esteemed panelists want to have a last word you can all have a last word if you want.
5: I just want to say I'm grateful to Robert Puckett and the AR for paying attention to this and to Chrissy uh, Hutchison-Jones for uh, coming out here and working on this. It's uh, it's kind of depressing to see the crowd, but that's not the fault of anyone who's here in the room, <laughs> <laughs> obviously, but uh, it's just a really important a really important issue. And I'm really grateful to you all for putting on these two panels. and. Uh, And I hope this this conversation continues in the AAR and elsewhere.
0: Well, thank you, Steve. And thank you, everyone, for joining us.